And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Who is Nate Silver, and why does everybody in politics care so much about what he thinks? Well, it has something to do with the fact that over the last 10 years, he's been one of the most accurate uh, forecasters and data analysts uh, writing and speaking about politics. Uh, He came by the University of Chicago last week, uh, his alma mater, to talk about data and politics and sports. Uh, And I sat down with him to talk about how he ended up being who he is. Nate Silver, a living legend. It's great to uh, be across the table from you. And welcome back to the University of Chicago, uh, where it all began. Thank you. No, I am a UC graduate. I'm still a huge fan of of the city of Chicago. Um, You know, I've been in New York for like almost 10 years now, and it's like a little bit of a weird interval when you come back to a city. It's kind of the place like Chicago, University of Chicago, and then lived Chicago afterwards, like kind of where I came of age, basically. So it's a little bit like you kind of get this like rush of like memories and emotions and like now you kind of see the city more as an outsider even though it was kind of your home city so but it is always great to so i have the reverse back. i grew up in new york yeah and i go back there and um i have all these warm memories but i do feel like a like a visitor i'll tell you i came out to chicago to go to the university of chicago and i thought boy this is a sleepy little town yeah, yeah. Uh, coming from new york um but uh now i'm a thoroughgoing chicagoan so i can give you the whole chapter and verse case for Chicago over New York. So now that all my relatives are gone from there. <laughs> anyway, uh, but that's not where you started. You started in, in East Lansing, Michigan. Tell that's me about right. that. Tell me about your folks. Yeah, so my dad is a, a political science professor. And so I guess it's very on brand for me to have um, have gotten into politics and covering politics. Was he an empiricist or what, what was his... What was his uh, how- so he was... Um, originally a Sovietologist when there was a Soviet Union. And what he would do is actually look at a lot at Soviet demographic data, which sounds like it's boring, but it's not because a lot of it was fake. It's like China now or something. And so you're trying to figure out, like, what's the real story behind um, abortion rates or birth rates or death rates or GDP or whatnot in Russia Um, and the Soviet Union, I should say, when the government is trying to look good and is trying to fudge the numbers, basically. Um, so he worked with data and statistics. So this is not like a, this wasn't a surprise that you should gravitate that way. No, I mean, he encouraged me to um, to major in economics um, if I was going to pick uh, pick something in in this arena generally because it is, especially at UFC, very quantitative and very rigorous, not that the other disciplines aren't. Um, so I don't all that often listen to my parents, but I did this time and I majored <laughs> – Majored in economics at the University of Chicago, um, but for sure, I mean, I've always, you know, part of my fascination with with baseball and with sports also comes from um, the fact that, like, there are a lot of numbers, obviously, to analyze baseball and basketball in particular. Those two, yeah. Um, and so, and so, yeah. So it all it all kind of makes sense in, in a lot. Of I ways. Uh, I want to talk to you about that in a minute, being a a fellow um, sports fanatic. Uh, your mom. Uh, uh, in my notes, it says she's a com- she was a community activist. Yeah. So what what what, what <clears throat> so was, not, not how did that like manifest it, itself? It meant that she would attend a lot of city council meetings, you know, organize campaigns to um, to instill more like stop signs and things like that, right? Which always used to 
annoy me as a kid. I'm like, well, we're driving around and we have all these stop signs, right? It just makes things slower. Um, but I'm sure she it had you saved, in mind when she I'm put sure it up. stopped many accidents and saved lives yeah. and, and ultimately and so on and so forth. And so she was always like very um, politically aware. You know, my parents um, would every day go out and buy the New York Times at the one um, at the one like bookstore back when there were bookstores that had it. Um, you know, and that's before they had like national delivery. And then eventually yeah. the Times was able to deliver nationally. It was almost like disappointing to them because they enjoyed the routine of like going out and like buying their <laughs> out of town papers um, and reading it at home. Um, so definitely like, you know, it was like a, a kind of intellectual family. Um, you know, my dad was a professor at Michigan State University. So it's like part of where it's a big 10 town. It's like it's where a lot of like the um, the sports things come from, you know, where I could actually kind of hear the roar of the football stadium. Um from my house, basically, when they was when they were playing games, I would go to. We had Michigan State hockey season tickets, so I'm also a hockey fan. Um, and so, kind of, it all makes now that you st- step back and reflect, but, you know, but, it all kind of makes Judd sense. Judd Heathcote era, Judd Heathcote era, Michigan State basketball. Yeah, although yeah. we a little bit later on in high school, when I don't know when Izzo took over, right? But we mm-hmm. had some, um, you know, Magic Johnson. I guess when I was one year old, was it '79? Mm-hmm. They won the championship. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, people in East Lansing were Lakers fans often because, like, um, because of Magic. And then, of course, the Pistons became big rivals with the Lakers. And, and so Magic was still beloved, but, like, got a little bit abandoned. But, like, but it all makes it all makes sense. Mm-hmm. Tell me about uh, – were, were your folks sports fans? Was, is, or, or was that something that you just – My mom, not really. I mean, my dad's a um, – Dad's a sports fan. I'd say like a big sports fan, not like a huge, enormous sports fan, but like, but again, we're going to like um, Michigan State hockey games and trying to like go to as many Tigers games as we can and so forth. Um, You know, go to Joe Lewis Arena for various stuff. Um, Go to the NCAA tournament now and then if Michigan State was was playing. Um, There was some game we went to in like Knoxville, Tennessee, and like I really wanted to stay because. this freshman named Shaquille O'Neal was playing in the next game. Yeah, and how'd that work out? Like, He's, he got he was well, good. he was good. Yeah, my parents were like, "Yeah, we gotta go. We have to go get dinner." Sorry, <laughs> so that was disappointing. Um, but but yeah, I mean the sports thing. I think you know I always love. I was never particularly athletic or or good at sports, right? Um, you know, I'm faster than you would think, but like not super coordinated. Um, but like you know, I like competition. I like applying your thinking to problems right and again like michigan's just a big a big sports state you know all four it's a four sports state baseball football basketball hockey um you know all four of those sports are big and prominent in michigan so you have a lot of 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 pickings to choose from so let's talk about the 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 um the mix of things here uh your your interest in uh, or your gravitation to numbers and statistics and sports so when did you start? I mean, Bill James baseball abstracts came along at some time, probably when you, when you were coming of age and so on. What drew you to that aspect of, of of baseball? I mean, part of it is my um, <clears throat> my friend and I played fantasy baseball. My friend Ray and I um, something which is still around. I think called score sheet baseball, which is like you basically draft a team and they simulate games, but yeah. they simulate in a way it's pretty accurate where. You know, you want um, batters with good on-base percentages, and you want pitchers with good strikeout-to-walk ratios. Um, and so the first year, we, like, drafted a team, and it was full of, like, uh, 
Ruben Sierra and like Andre Dawson and all these guys that we thought were really good because they were kind of famous. Um, but they were not very good sabermetric players. They all struck yeah. out too much, didn't walk enough. Um, we spent too much on relief pitchers, for example. And so, um, and so our team was really bad and we were really frustrated by that. And so it kind of brought us to the gospel of reading about um, reading from Bill James, reading like the early days of um, of baseball perspectives as that was growing and just kind of figuring some stuff out on our own. And, you know, eventually was like these uh, 16 and 17 year olds who were like two of the best managers in the country. Like our team would win like 110 games every year. And like they'd send around like national leaderboards. And we, we would like call these adults in Indiana and like propose trades, right? Um, and the adults, you know, like call them at night. And they were like drunk or something like, ah, oh, it's funny. Kids calling and like, you'd make a, make a trade, you know? Uh, so, so it's always been motivated by, by kind of a sense of, of competition. I think people don't necessarily know that about me. It's like, I'm someone who I'm very competitive, right? I want to like prove people wrong. Um, and I want to like a challenge in a confrontation. I want to like win that confrontation. And so you were a debate champion. It was also a debate champion. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which, you know, certainly hones like a lot of like, like research skills. I mean, debates, policy debate, um, is not necessarily about being the most beautiful like rhetoric or whatever. It's not like a presidential debate. In fact, it was um, um, about kind of making as many arguments that were evidence-driven, but also doing that as fast as you could. Because I'm not sure if I believe this is the right way to judge a debate now, but like at the time, the paradigm was like, hey, if someone else forgets to get to one of your arguments, then that carries huge weight, right? Um you, so you like, want to you want to lay down as many as possible. You and want to force them to react to it. And I still speak too fast. You want to literally speak very fast it's good because we can get more in. in this you can podcast, get more in, in the yeah. podcast. Yeah, people joke because now people listen to podcasts on like half speed or whatever, and like it's, <laughs> or you know two x speed or whatever else. Um, but like, but yeah, and so that definitely hones like a lot of a research skills. Um, although it's very a very jaded way of looking at the world at some in some ways everything kind of comes down to like nuclear war it's like who has more nuclear wars and their set of outcomes and so on and so forth and like so it's a little strange in some ways and i think i think actually now debate has become like a bit more socially aware and there are more kind of critiques um of how debate is run and so maybe it's kind of gone to the other extreme where it's less empirical than you're it used sitting to be, but you're sitting uh tonight at the Institute of Politics here with Austin Goolsby, the yeah. former chair of the Council of Economic Advisors, who was a national debate champion. And it's interesting to hear Austin talk about debate because he was very aware of the sort of theater of debate. Like he debated and defeated several times Ted Cruz in <laughs> debates. And he said the way he did it was just by irritating him and Cruz would just lose it. And uh, he, you know, he would make a point and he said, I'd make it to the judge and not to him about him. And this would just infuriate him. I mean, there's so. a lot of game. And, and also like, this is something where, you know, every weekend in high school for my last two or three years, I was going to a debate tournament, usually in suburban Detroit or sometimes Chicago, or we went to Texas and North Carolina and Iowa. We always drove, right? Cause we were like, a public school, so kind of yeah. raising money out of our pocket, basically. Um, and so it was for non-athletic. It's kids, like yeah. it's very much yeah. like that, yeah. and it like takes you out of like. Look, I'll be honest. Like I, East Lansing High School was a good public school, but I was bored. I was ready to like go off to, to college or do something different. And so this is a, a way to like basically like have an alternate kind of education when you're in, in high school and you're meeting people from around the country and like and like. Um, 
you know, we were, my partner Katie Hoffman and I were, were a very good team. And so, but it was, it was a lot of fun. You, um, you also wrote, you were a journalist, a student journalist. So, uh, you know, oftentimes people who are, uh, who gravitate to numbers aren't necessarily the best writers, uh, but you had an interest in both. What, what attracted you to journalism? Um, I mean, so partly it was just like, I don't know, right? Um, it's a way to like, look at the world. It's a way to like, to, I mean, I like to kind of solve problems, to think through problems. And I love, you know, so what it was doing was like, by and large, like not like, not reporting. It was more, um, more in the realm of like editorial writing and kind of criticizing how the school was run and so forth. Um, the traditional student jur- journalism. Yeah. You know, at, <laughs> at one point, uh, I actually commissioned a poll where we took approval ratings um, for the principal, the vice principal, the athletic director, and whoever the fourth. There's like a you know quadrant of like four people, right? And like and like, lo and behold, the two people who got poor approval ratings in that poll actually like had new jobs next year. I, you know, they would <laughs> never ever admit that that was the reason why. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I got that's in, power, man. Well, yeah, I know, but it, it was like <laughs> I also got fired from the paper at some point because there was some debate tournament that was more important and and and. You know, I think I, this is, I don't want to relitigate things from, from uh, twenty two years ago or whatever, right? Yeah, but, but you know, I think that's the firing, time. I'm sure we have listeners. I think are... that firing was an error, <laughs> and that they were well informed of my conflict. That you weekend. you are competitive, aren't you? <laughs> so uh, yeah, the interesting thing about your writing is that it is a you, you're you're obviously oftentimes you're talking about data, so it requires this. But even I, I, I mentioned you before this. I read your analysis of the State of the Union. It, it tends to be a, a, a logical kind of progression. Uh, you know, you start with certain assumptions, you test those assumptions. Um, you, you have a very distinct uh, f- uh, form of writing. I appreciate that, and it's something I've spent a lot of time, um, a lot of time working on. And writing a book actually helps a lot with that because yes. it forces you to like actually, um, you know, revise your writing like three or four or or five times. Um, you know, I'm sort of a... Yeah, I, I know about this. I used to have hair before I wrote a book. So. <laughs> no, I mean, writing a book is maybe the most, like, um, I don't want to discourage people from writing books, but, like, maybe the most taxing intellectual thing you can do because you get so immersed in it. Um, you know, we're so used to, um, whether it's sitting down to write an article, right, you're sitting down and usually it's not done in one sitting, but it's usually two or three sittings. So it's all kind of in your, in your short-term memory. Um, <clears throat> with a book, you have to enter things into your long-term memory because it's a too big to bite off, and so it's going to be at the very minimum a project of of several months. In my case, writing a book took four years over periods where you're doing a lot of other things too, right? But maybe you know spread out over a four-year period, and so and so it gets embedded kind of very deep in your brain, like the argument you're trying to make and the hypothesis that you're trying to to wrestle with. Um, and so you know that's quite. That's quite challenging. I will tell you this: um, I had the privilege of uh, of getting to know Ellie Wiesel, and I, I, and I was we were friendly at a time the time when I was writing the book, and I um, he asked me how it was going, and and in this discussion I said, you know, you, you're such a beautiful writer, uh, and said, but you know, I find myself agonizing, you know, over a paragraph. He said, sometimes it, I would just. It would take me a whole morning to write a paragraph. Yeah, and it makes you feel better, you know, to to hear that. It's a it's 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 a hard thing. Anyway, you came to the University of Chicago, uh, and 
you you sort of touched on this before, but what attracted you to this place? Um, it was like partly wanting to be in an urban environment. Um, you know, I'm not sure I knew myself, even though I had done debate and newspaper and all these things. I'm not sure I really knew myself uh, that well when I was 18, right? Um, I kind of knew I was gay. I hadn't come out yet. There are things like that, right? And so it's like, so I didn't want to like, I looked at a lot of schools like um, like Williams College in Massachusetts, mm-hmm. Um which is a wonderful school, but is in the middle of nowhere in Western Massachusetts, right? Um, you know, I looked at University of Michigan, which is a very big, um, very big state school, obviously. Um, you know, University of Wisconsin, which is where my parents went. And so it was just, you know, I just was like, I don't know where my life's going to go. And so I want to be in a place, it's a city, and where I'm not getting all my mm-hmm. learning just from um, the campus, the campus yeah. you know. On the other hand... Um, you know, I think I liked the notion that, like, this is a place where it's okay to, like, be really intellectual and be really into um, what you're studying. You know, I liked and I still do like the multidisciplinary nature of the U of C, um, where you're honing your your writing skills. You know, again, like, in school, like, I actually, um, I found, like, classes that involve writing and thinking skills actually, like, easier. I, you know, I first had some idea of, like, double majoring in in physics and economics and drop the physics part pretty fast. Um, because like for me, I'm very good with, um, concrete problems that involve numbers and data. So probabilities, um, you know, geometry I was good at because it was just very concrete algebra was good at. Um, once you get too abstract and you're like doing proofs and like solving equations, like that's not how my brain works as well. Um, and so I was not particularly good at like, at that part of and you recognized that while you were here, I mean, you came to that. Well, and also that's a lot of self awareness, and also, uh, you know, you're trying to have fun, right? I mean, I think I had felt like in um, in high school, I had like repressed a fair amount of that in part because you're spending every weekend at a debate tournament, literally, and so you're not necessarily like working on like your social life or whatever. And so, but yeah, I know I had a lot of a fun in college. I kind of made sure that like. Um, What's my rule that like every week I had to get off campus at least once, whether it was just going out for tacos or going to a, a Cubs game. It was just at the time, you know, when did I go to school, I guess 96 through 2000. Oh, yeah. At the very Sammy start, Sosa time. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. at the start of that window, um, you could still kind of go and like, and like some dude would sell you a ticket for 15 bucks and it was a pretty good seat and just kind of be spontaneous, you know. Um, remember, you know, one time like it was raining and then some people were like, oh, um, people were selling the tickets for 15 bucks. It was like Carrie Wood against Tom Glavin, and we like sat behind home plate. Um, so total style contrast between those two pitchers. Yeah. Um, I like the White Sox too. I had a lot of fun times at, at what was then called Comiskey Park. Um, but but yeah, and so experiencing Some of us still it, call it that. Yeah, well, I Defiantly. think it's – What is it now? It's not even U.S. Cellular. No, it's a guaranteed, guaranteed rate field. Um, and, you know, with all due respect to the White Sox, I'm a season's ticket holder. What a lousy name for a, a baseball name. Game. Yeah. And their emblem is uh, – their their logo is an arrow going down, which is not the logo you want <laughs> on your stadium. Um, so. But if they sign Bryce Harper with that – Money well, you know, Machado is the guy they're going after. Yeah. We'll, we'll get back to this. We'll get back to baseball in a second. You spent one year in London. Yeah. At the London School of Economics during your 
college years, and then you uh, you came back, uh, and then when you uh, graduated, you uh, with your degree in economics, you went to uh, KPMG as a transfer pricing consultant. Very, which sounds just dreadfully. <laughs> <laughs> boring. No, it sounds like some job out of like the office or something. Yes. Um, yeah, look, I would highly recommend um, going abroad. I mean, I think like, you know, literally it kind of expands your world a mm-hmm. lot. Um, I just think in general, like people should travel a lot, period, whether it's on the cheap as a student or more luxuriously or whatever else. Um, the one big downside to traveling in your junior year um is that it kind of leaves you with this like um, rump of a senior year where you're not quite sure what to do with it, right? Um, probably you still have some of the same friends, but some people have have mm-hmm. moved on, right? If you knew people who were seniors before, they're already gone all of a right. sudden, right? And so like, pick so up all over. it leaves you like a little bit drifting, and I'm not really sure that like um, that I thought that much about what I wanted to do. Um, it was, one thing I should interrupt and say. One thing I read is that you came back from there and and you told your parents you were gay. Yeah. So it was an easy way out or you go to London and you're like, okay, a whole fucking different country, right? <laughs> all different continent. And so that can solve that problem. Um, um, but how yeah. Did, how, how did they, how did, how did they receive that? They were supportive. I mean, I, uh, you know, they're like, they're good liberal parents basically. Um, but you know, people forget like how, much it changes, even like kind of year to year, right? Where like, um, you know, if, if I were like two years, again, I'm 41 now, born in 78. If I was like two years younger or two years older, it would kind of make a lot of difference. But you're kind of right on the cusp of like, of where it became much less of a big deal, I suppose. Um, obviously, you know, you see gay marriage legalized and whatever else, but like, but that was a big deal. I mean, people forget in 2008, the three Democratic candidates, including Obama, were all yes. at least ostensibly sort of opposed to gay marriage, right? And so, you Uncomfortably know, opposed to gay Uncomfortably, marriage. yeah. Um, and that wasn't very long ago. Um, right. And so it changes fast. So like the exact kind of year in which you're born is, is relevant. You wrote there. a piece actually when the Supreme Court uh, made its ruling on gay marriage about your own journey, but also about the, the pace of change, yeah. which is extraordinary. And- Partly, not partly, but probably uh, a function of the modern media environment, you know, advancing these things at a much more uh, yeah, rapid no, rate. Yeah, I know. Look, I think um, what I think tripped people up for a long time is that, you know, the 50s through, well, I guess the 60s aren't really a good example. Um, but with the exception of the 60s, the important exception of the 60s, the 50s through the 90s were a period where things were just very stable. Um, which is good in a lot of ways. It means there are fewer um, recessions, there was less inequality and so on and so forth, while well, much more like racial and, you know, inequality and so on. But like, but, uh, you know, um, that stability is actually kind of like an outlier over the course of American history mm-hmm. more broadly. And, and politics are tumultuous. Um, you know, I have one friend who's really into like, um, literally political theater. So like these little shows in the, in the, um, East village, um, you know, and you like go and you like kind of see a show about like, what was it like in Hungary kind of 
um, amidst the rise and fall of communism, you're like, oh my gosh, right? Like throughout the world, things are crazy all the time and there are regimes that are brutal and yeah. and oppressive and like people struggle to have have freedom and people struggle to live well and like, and there's tremendous upheaval that can change over the course of, of you know, months or years. And so to have this like very long stable period in the U.S. from the 50s through the 90s, I think kind of um, kind of trick people into thinking that's that's the normal period and that's how politics normally are. And now, oh, everything is so is so crazy now when when American history is full of crazy. There's no periods. doubt. I mean, when people say, "Well, this is the worst it's ever been," and this is a country where we fought a civil war. I yeah. mean, you know, so you have to put it in perspective. But I do think that because we're being bombarded constantly with messages all yeah. the time, there is this sense of uh, kind of frenetic change, and I wonder how much that is driving uh, some of the, you know, these these very sharp uh, political divides, not just here, but, you know, you see it in Europe and elsewhere. Um, but, it, 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 you know, having lived through all of this, um, but the, 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 the pace at which attitudes toward uh, gay marriage changed was pretty astonishing, you know? It, it was, but I think, like, um, the lesson from that is that attitudes can also change in a less progressive direction absolutely pretty fast you know i thought people were too optimistic to say okay well things always kind of you know you experience progress well maybe you do six out of ten times <laughs> things become more progressive but that still means like four out of ten times they don't and you still experience these kind of big jolts toward um toward a lot of reaction toward immigrants for example yes um the revival of more explicit forms of racism um, in parts of Europe and the United States. Well, I would argue that uh, the the pace of change um, yields these backlashes. You know, um, so um, uh, you know, I, I think what's animating a lot of um, what we see in the base of you know Trump's most vocal base the, and the Brexit. Uh, Movement, uh, what you've seen in in Hungary, uh, what you see in France and 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 Italy, you know, is is driven. It is a reaction. It's reactionary mm-hmm. politics, and uh, and I think the pace of change has something to do with it. So you you are a transfer pricing consultant. I don't want to waste a lot of time talking about what that entailed. Yeah, but whatever it entailed, uh, it was enough to drive you into poker. Yeah. Um- now, transfer pricing consulting involves trying to figure out how I was trying to give like a explanation that made it sound interesting, and there's not really one, right? <laughs> but it's, it's how companies price their goods and services within the company so they can meet tax authorities in different countries, right? If you sell a semiconductor from Singapore to the United States, then how do you price that to make sure you're not taking advantage? of the U.S. by having all your profit in Singapore, which is a lower tax jurisdiction. So you're basically like trying to like work with companies to, to improve their tax situation without getting audited or losing an audit. <laughs> um, so it was not really something I was very excited about. Um, uh, this was, however, a period where um, there was a poker boom, or what I kind of call a poker bubble more. Um, so 2003, Chris Moneymaker won the World Series of Poker um, he was a guy who had been 
kind of had a job like mine. He was an accountant at Delight and Touche um, and like paid 20 bucks. Apparently some of the story is like he like enhanced the legend. So it's not strictly true. But the legend was that like he paid 20 bucks to enter a qualifying tournament, um, won a ticket to the real world series of poker in in Las Vegas and then won that too. So it took 20 bucks into two and a half million dollars or whatever. Um, and so this combined with poker being I don't know if it'd be good with numbers to say that's a pretty good return on it's investment. It's a very good return on investment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but also when you see poker on TV, um, then you get a very uh, edited version of what of what poker is like. Um, where number one, you kind of put yourself in the shoes of the, of the winner, of the protagonist, and they edit it such that Chris Moneymaker looks like he's always making good decisions. It kind of underplays the role of luck. Um, Was his name really Chris Moneymaker? It's pretty much made for TV. Yeah, yeah. it's very, yeah. very um, spot on. A little on the nose, in fact. Um, Was there like a Joe Never Wins? Joe Never, I mean, you know. <laughs> no, but it, these guys were kind of old, like, because now a lot of the poker is dominated by, it's gone through phases. Now a lot of it's dominated by, like, like younger kids, quote unquote, they don't necessarily have a ton of personality. Although a lot of the better players are really interesting people and I think um, are able to have two sources of income where they play poker, but they also coach or teach or have YouTube channels or, or write books or whatever else. I'm still friends with um, with several poker players because there is you, a you, way of looking at the You actually made a living for a couple of years. For a couple of years. And a pretty good living, right? Yeah, I think I made, um, you know, I don't know, Someone like 150K one year and 230K one year and the next year like lost 70K and then quit. Um, but they were very juicy games for a while. You had a lot of new players who weren't that good. Um, and where'd you, were you playing in Vegas or no, 90 or 95% of it is, is online. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and part of it was like, uh, I don't know how technical you want to get. How People, do you decide, how do you read someone's poker face online? You don't, you're trying to play the, <laughs> so what I would do is I would play more aggressively than, than other people. Um, and it turns out that I've like only actually, been talking to you for half an hour, but yeah. this doesn't surprise me somehow. I'm no, but like, in fact, if you follow like the game theory approach to poker, you're supposed to play quite aggressively. You're supposed to bluff a lot because if you don't bluff, then people have no reason to like call you down when you have good hands. Mm -hmm. um, and so people wouldn't play aggressively enough. I didn't like ever analyze this in a proper way. It was just kind of you intuit it by repeated trial and attempts, right? You no, know, here are these hands that you're not supposed to play, but like, let me add to my repertoire. Um, and actually, oh, these are pretty profitable for me. Um, so you kind of learn it through trial and error and just kind of being like, being competitive. And how many hours a day would you spend on this? I would spend, I would say I would spend 25 hours a week. I mean, it's like 25 hours, like actually playing poker. To me, online, first of all, online, you're often playing three or four tables at once, right? Some people would play like, 15 or 20. I couldn't do that because I wanted to concentrate more on individual games. So it's like, it's talk about things that are like very taxing mentally, like playing poker where you're really concentrating um, is very taxing. And so, you know, so 25 hours, I mean, we can talk about like how productive are people in their week. So 25 hours of like, of my week now, I mean, do I spend 25 really, really productive hours in a week? You know, I hope so most weeks, especially in the peak of election periods. Mm -hmm. Um, but I work, quote unquote, 70 hours, even though we're 80 hours, um, not as much anymore, but still, you know, but a lot of it is like reading, reading Twitter, you know, kind of thinking about something when you're um, 
at the gym, right? And like going to meetings. And so it's like not necessarily like highly productive time. So like 25 like really productive hours playing poker or 25 really productive hours a week, like writing or things that are these really high intensity tasks is equivalent to like 70 hours of medium intensity. Yeah, no, no doubt. No, that's an impressive, that's an impressive number. You also, in this period, I guess still when you were, uh, when you were uh, working for uh, KPMG, uh, you developed a, a system uh, that uh, uh, called the Player Empirical Comparison and Optimization Test <laughs> Algorithm. I mean, the name is kind of a, a it was joke, a, right? It, it was, was a, because yeah. you were playing off of a guy named Pakoda, yeah. who was sort of an average player for the Detroit Tigers when you were growing up. Uh, so uh, talk about talk about that because that was sort of the that was the pathway to your next engagement yeah so um so the idea behind pakoda i would say there are two real innovations um only both kind of borrow from other people one of which is the idea of using similarity scores so bill james has had this thing for example where we, we talked about before talking about like Frank Robinson, for example, and you'd find like who are all the players in history who are similar who, to who Frank? passed away passed today. Away May today rest in peace. He was this. a uh, and he was a really giant figure in the game. Um, but you know, Bill James had these things called similarity scores. You could look up and say who are the similar players to Frank Robinson. Well, you know, Hank Aaron might be might be one good yeah, there too example. Yeah. There aren't too many when you no. get that good, right? right. Um, you know, Willie Mays is is faster, but not a terrible comparable for Frank Robinson. Um, but, you know, I kind of realized, okay, Bill James would do that to be backward looking. So we're now looking back at Frank Robinson's career. Well, let's say we're looking back at someone who was a more, not as eminently great as as Frank Robinson. You're looking back at Scott Rowland, for example, and debating should Scott Rowland be in the Hall of Fame? And you kind of say, oh, actually, a lot of these guys that like had numbers like Scott Rowland are in the Hall of Fame or they aren't or whatever else. Um, but I thought, what if you're actually using that to make projections with? So you look at a guy who might be, 21 years old, you know, Chris Bryant a few years ago, and he has various promising skills, but there's also the ghost of Gary Scott or other former Cubs prospects or other third base prospects who burned out. And so you say, um, what's the whole set of comparable players that we can look at as a predictive exercise? And the second part that stems from that is the notion of a probabilistic forecast. So instead of saying, okay, um, you know, Chris Bryant will hit 291 with 34 homers, 106 RBIs next year, right? Well, the one thing I can guarantee is that he's not going to hit exactly 291 <laughs> slash 34 slash 106. Um, if you're lucky, you'll be within a few of each of those categories. Yeah. And so the notion of like saying, let's we take that, by about, the way, this season. He didn't have a very good le- year last year. Yeah, you would take that probably yes, now. Yeah. Um, it's a good year. But like, but the idea of being explicit about quantifying the uncertainty in the forecast. And of course, you see for, for young players, there's more upside and more downside. For injured players, more upside and more downside. Um but so that kind of touched off this notion of probability, which figures heavily into into later work that we would do at 538. You uh, you know, Theo Epstein, we, we've sat across this table uh, or a table uh, talking uh, for this podcast. And um, actually, I, I spent a lot of time with Theo because I wrote a piece for The New Yorker about the Cubs a few years ago. And he said, with just about the same level of enthusiasm as you have, he said, you know, we know about 3%. Of the game, <laughs> yeah, and he said, and I'm just trying all the time to understand, and my my team and my 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 the guys I work with, like, 
another 1% of the game? What are the insights that we can gain by kind of combing through data? Uh, and, and of course, he's been very successful with that. You know, he was one of the early great successes with it continues uh, to be. How much has data analysis changed sports? Oh, it's totally transformed. I mean, particularly um, baseball and basketball. I mean, unmistakably, the way that um, the way that baseball is played now, with the focus on on strikeouts, with the ways that relief pitchers are used, with um, with defensive shifts. So the defensive players, shifts are yeah. interesting. Where I think they have actually been overused, and now hitters are readjusting. And so you often can make the mistake in politics or sports or, or other things where you treat a system as static. Yeah. When it's dynamic, right? Like the first time that like someone tried to shift. Um, it was really problematic, right? But like, but if you uh, repeat that behavior, and they're professional athletes, and they're smart guys, some of them, and they adjust and adapt, and then all of a sudden, oh, probably it isn't great against a professional hitter, uh, hitter to leave half the field uncovered. That they can figure out how to how to um, how to work around that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it certainly transformed baseball. You know, I think, you know, once you turn forty, you're allowed to like be a curmudgeon about some things. You know, I don't happen to love. Um, the very strikeout focused, yeah. I mean, basically, the home, runs, home runs and strikeouts are dominating. Yeah, you know, and it's 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 not as much fun as when, you know, you were playing hit and run and. Um, no, it's not as much fun. Yeah. Um, it's redundant and like and um, you know you're going four and a half minutes now between the average ball and play. I mean that is that is problematic. I think baseball for a long time sort of. Um, sort of deny that it was a problem, and I think they're starting to pay more of a, a price for it. Um, basketball also unmistakably changed with the focus on on three-pointers yeah. um, and spacing. Uh, you don't have to be a math genius to figure out that if you get three points three. for one kind of basket and two points for another, maybe you should focus on three getting the three. Three is more than two. That's yeah. a huge advantage. Yeah. Um, and it's at the point now where, like, you know, even the best, you know, Kevin Durant shooting an uncontested mid-brain shot, that's a good shot. Um, but that's the absolute tip of the iceberg for like, for like when a, um, a mid range two is worth it period. Um, you know, I actually do think that like the NBA is in a very attractive phase now. And in that case, um, it's led to the game being more interesting and more wide open. Yeah. More if you, fun I mean, to if watch, you go yeah. back and like, look at clips of basketball from the fifties, a bunch of like tall dudes, like with their squeak or, you know, squeaking sneakers, like standing in the paint and like, it's like not very attractive and now I think basketball is really interesting and you know, I actually probably follow basketball um more than baseball now in part mm-hmm. because by the way like if you do cover campaigns for a living yes then that's really problematic for baseball because every other <laughs> year the climax of the campaign Co- coincides yeah. with the climax of the baseball season um yes. whereas the other three sports are kind of perfect right you're done right um with campaign in early November, the NBA season's just starting. The NFL, you can see the second half of the season, the NHL, whatever. Um, and so, just kind of being in this line of work has probably um, it's a well. This, this is a good segue. You you uh, you were writing for Baseball Prospectus after your poker years, and uh, and probably during your poker years, uh, and uh, and then you started bringing some of your data analysis to uh, the Daily Coes. And you, you uh, in the 2008 election, became kind of a phenom. Yeah. Um, I mean, this wasn't exactly planned. Um, so I started getting into following politics more seriously for a couple of reasons, one of which was in, in 2006, um, 
there were efforts by the Republican Congress to ban online poker, um, which actually succeeded. Um, but in this kind of backhanded way where they attached like some other bill and it was very last minute. Um, but that got me way into uh, tracking the mechanics of Congress and the Senate and how bills worked. I mean, I knew something about politics, but like, you know, I, I don't know, right? Um, but not a lot. Um, but so, and then also getting into like the 2006 midterm where it was like, okay, um, the hope is that number one, that, um, Republicans aren't able to pass a bill now. Number two, that like Democrats take over at least one chamber of Congress because then to save video poker, to save, to save poker. And it's not like Democrats were particularly pro poker, but like you're going to have gridlock, harder to get things done. Good for my poker career. If if you have (laughs) a split in government, um, and so, but yeah, that basically, got me kind you were of, a special interest, is what you were. Sort of, yeah. <laughs> but that got me more into like following um, real clear politics and site like that, and tracking the different Senate races and so forth. And the other thing, though, honestly, was like um, a little bit being in Chicago and having um, having Obama run, um, where it was kind of like, okay, this is not the type of same politician that like. Um, you're used to seeing Ron, right? He's kind of a cool guy. He's from Chicago. He's kind of a geek in his own way, right? Um, he's a black guy when you've never had a black president, and yet he actually seems to be very popular. Um, and so in a lot of ways, as you see connection, I remember when he ran for um, for Congress against Bobby Rush and got yeah. his butt kicked. Yeah. Um, and at he the could time, have used like, a little data analysis before he decided <laughs> to do that. He probably could have, right? Yeah. And at the time, it was like, oh, I was like this <laughs> campus hipster thing, like Barack Obama, who the hell is that, right? <laughs> You know, I don't care about this congressional race. I don't care if he's speaking at the C shop or whatever. Um, but like, um, but it was kind of, it was that. And it was also feeling like I was a little bored with um, with the poker games that because of that law were starting to dry up a lot, where it kind of left things in an ambiguous territory where internet poker wasn't quite banned, but you couldn't really like, mm-hmm. it was cumbersome to play. And that meant that bad play- players didn't play and poker against only good players is not very fun or profitable. <laughs> um, you know, feeling like the baseball thing had um, had sort of run its course. Maybe to Theo's comment, that was arrogant, right? Um, but it kind of felt like, okay, now... But you weren't in the business of baseball. No. I mean, yeah. he's in the business of yeah. baseball. I mean, he loves it. It's obviously a passion, but he also has a pecuniary incentive to try and find that extra 1% of... Yeah. You know. Yeah, so I... But I felt like... Um, you know, the Moneyball revolution had occurred, although I think it was like much more of a of a bloodless revolution that was much more a synthesis synthesis of data plus scouting plus kind of good management practices than people might assume. It wasn't quite as much of a it was not a bloody war. Um so you know but, you 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 um your data analysis basically uh took various factors, um, the most of which was uh, polling data, and uh, develop probability models for outcomes. Um, we had a guy, a young guy who was a field guy for us, I think in Iowa, named Dan Wagner, another, a fellow mm-hmm. graduate of the University of Chicago who you probably know. And he came to us in the Obama campaign and said, you know, I think I can make some reasonable assumptions about uh, who is likely to be a voter for us and how likely they are to vote. And I can segment the electorate based on uh, probabilities. And he, he tried it out in Iowa and, um, and then, you know, 
by 2012, we had a 57-person data yeah. analytics unit uh, in the campaign. But his would, even though the techniques were similar in some ways, he also was doing different things because he was taking thousands of points of data yeah. about voters and trying to make suppositions about individual voters. You're doing something different. Yeah, in, in opposite in the sense that what we're doing is very macro focused, mm -hmm. right? We're not trying to um, to convince voters to do anything. Um, we're just trying to say, okay, what are people thinking right now and how predictive is that? And what are the uncertainties? Um, what are the complexities of like the Electoral College where how much is the vote in Ohio correlated with the vote in Pennsylvania um, is a problem that you have to solve. Um, if you're looking at polls, should you use a fewer number of polls that are more recent or take a longer running average? I mean, these are all technical things that you have to spend. And how do you evaluate uh, polls that are uh, – and you, one of the things you've done is you've assigned uh, weight to – more weight to polls yeah. that have a, a a strong predictive record. And part of – you know, a lot of what our, our – um, my models are designed like – in some ways it's like very like much – I don't know how to put it, but like you're playing defense a little bit where it's like, okay, what happens if you have like a, a really weird outlier poll come in? Um, you know, how robust is my model to weird things that can happen in the electorate? Mm -hmm. um, weird things that can happen in the data. You know, a lot of times people say, well, I have a model and it works under these and that and X and Y and D conditions. Um, you know, I don't really think that's terribly useful it's easy whether you have a model or not to get the easy calls right and it's like what do you do about the weird like edge cases in, instead um but you know at the same time politics and sports are a little different in the sense that that campaigns have always been pretty sophisticated about data and the obama campaign might have been the most sophisticated ever but it's not like it's not like carl Rowe was a chump with this stuff mm -hmm. stuff either um and so there it was more like the campaigns were doing it and the media was not very state driven. Um, the flip side of that from from sports, where it was the teams that were kind of very old fashioned, and it was Bill James who, um, you know, kind of outside agitators first began writing on blogs and sometimes making it into more mainstream media and whatever else, and then the teams kind of adopted it. Um, so the trajectory was a little bit different. So you were Bill James in this analogy. I'm saying it because I know you don't want to. You probably don't want to claim overclaim, but you're not overclaiming. You were the first guy who brought that kind of uh, of discipline and orientation to how media organizations looked at polling data. I, I mean, there were other efforts. I mean, there was like the Princeton Election Consortium and things like that, and like I think some of those were were good, some of them were not as good. Um, but it was a combination of like of being a pretty good statistician and being a pretty good communicator and having, you know, being like a, a eight out of 10 on both those skill sets instead of being a, a 10 on one and a two on the other, I think um, was important for that. Getting for that. 49 out of 50 states right in 2008 was helpful too. It was helpful too, although I don't know, you know, probably talk about this at the event. There's an event at UFC tonight, which yes. you can probably find a recording of. You know, I think Austin and I are going to talk about that. You know, to me, that's not necessarily the best way to evaluate forecasts. And one of the things that's like a little frustrating is like, for me, I think we actually, like, I think the best forecast we ever issued was the one we issued in 2016. Mm -hmm. 
because it saw you are much less yeah bullish because it on, saw a path on Hillary for Clinton's Trump chances for the right reasons because like there are all these undecided voters because the electoral college helped Trump because all these outcomes in different states were correlated so if she underperformed just here in the Midwest that alone could cost her the presidency so from my standpoint like that was like um, the best model we ever designed because it kind of um, saw things that other people missed for the right reasons you know 99 out of 100 people on the street would say no you said Hillary was 71% or whatever, and therefore you're wrong, and therefore 2008 or, you know, 2018, the models were very good. Those were better years. And so, so you know, that is one thing you learn actually from um, from poker and to some extent sports also. Um, in poker and sports, like you have repeated trials. You play 82 NBA games a year, 162 baseball games. In poker, the minute you win or lose a hand, you have the next hand is dealt to you while you're collecting your chips. Um, or shipping your chips over to the other player. Um, and so you really get repeated trials and you learn that like, you know, it really is 90% about process. Um, you know, yes, if you have like bad outcome after bad outcome after bad outcome, then you have to go re-examine and say, is there something wrong with my process? But it's like, it's being very process focused. Um, it's, you know, it's like in poker, if you make a tough fold and your opponent shows you a bluff, it's not getting tilted by that, it's saying, you know what, against this entire range of hands, this is a pretty easy fold, and the fold will make me money in the long run. Um, and so, you know, so having that orientation um, is one of the things I don't took- like about politics, where things are so are so reactive, and everything is so like, okay, well, this got screwed up this way last time, so let's like overcompensate yeah. in the direction again. Well, um, this is... Yeah, we tend in politics to look backward. We tend to pol- in politics to sit on the back of the bus and look backward. And that's, you know, the, the, I think the successful campaigns and sex- successful politicians are looking forward and saying, ha- you know, what what is what is new? What is going? What is different? What is going to drive this thing in a different way? Uh, you know, but it is important to point out if you say the probability of her winning is seventy one percent. That means that in almost one of three yeah. instances, it's it's Chris Bryant getting a base hit. Yeah. Um, but also, it's also about where are you relative to other people. You know, if we had said that like Hillary had a seventy percent chance, and everyone else was like, "Oh, Trump is the favorite," then I don't think we would be saying as much about like, "Oh, it's actually a good forecast," because we were on the wrong side of the argument. In this case, the convention wisdom was that Trump had either no chance or a snowball's chance in hell, but not much better than that, um, which I think is not what the data said. And so, so for us, a, there was also like, was a, and I think I was uh, guilty of it as well, there was an elite media bias yeah. that just, there was a sense of incredulity that he could win. So yeah. that, I think, uh, influenced the uh, analysis of what was in front of us. Yeah, no, for sure. It was like, um, if you had had John Kasich with the exact same polls, and you kind of had a trial of this in in 2012, where you had, um, you know, Obama very consistently had an electoral college advantage against Mitt Romney, with the exception, maybe, you could tell me, um, the exception maybe of the time around the first debate, where it really got quite close. Um, Yeah, I will tell what I will tell you just real, since you asked, is that we actually had gained quite a bit when Ron, we had gained three points that we really didn't deserve. In our yeah. own polling, uh, we were set six, seven points up after Romney made that error in which he talked about the 47%. I always say that in, our, in a spirit of charity, we gave it all back. 
yeah. in the first debate. <laughs> well, and that can... But we never, I never felt, I don't think anything in our modeling ever suggested to us that the basic structure of the race was 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 altered much. Um, no, and, and, you know, so the campaigns are actually good about, like, there's another case where the campaigns are often more sophisticated than, than the media discussion. They're also, off, you know, I know, for example, that um, the Clinton campaign after the Access Hollywood tape was worried because they thought that this is a little bit of a sugar high that will deflate um, into the last three weeks. Now, they weren't worried to the point where they thought they were going to lose. Um, but, you know, but I think they thought, okay, well, this might thing might tighten up a bit. And so maybe if some contingency were to happen, say that after FBI right. director saying, oh, there might actually be some uh, evidence after all, you know, I mean, so, so that affected things. But um, yeah, well, I mean, that's the difficulty is that you th- there are two elements that it seems to me kind of defy some of what you do. One is, are these exogenous events that you can't, and I want to make clear, yeah. since you mentioned Access Hollywood, that I'm saying exogenous and not erogenous, exogenous yeah. events. And the second thing is uh, that people are, there. there is a nonlinear kind of uh, element to this, how people react to personalities, uh, you know, uh, and... Um, you know, it, it, like I know your analysis, and I wanted to ask you about this, uh, about the what the presence of a Howard Schultz would do. First of all, it's impossible to make these judgments yeah. with great precision a year in advance. But um, what what a what a or more than a year in advance, really two almost two years in advance. But um, and you used a battery of issues to show that uh, Trump had voters who were socially liberal and fiscally conservative but it's not entirely true that people vote only on the basis of what their issue positions are no they no they don't um and they might see Schultz is basically a liberal guy from 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 Brooklyn although i think um democrats have or even, even seattle or seattle yeah. right but richard from brooklyn right he talks right. about like yeah. but i think democrats have now become warier of like okay um i mean so first of all he does not formulate the best contrast to Trump, where another um, another billionaire um, who says, "Hey, we need a b- businessman to come in from the outside," you know, another older white guy, another guy who had, um, mm-hmm. as Trump did with the USFL, kind of a dalliance in professional sports that ended, you know, well, ended well, badly. Schultz, Schultz actually was, did, but his ended badly for the people of Seattle. Yeah, we could be talking about like how they shipped his team to Oklahoma City. Okay, or the Seattle Sonics have this three pronged right. dynasty with James right. Harden. Um, but but yeah, no, look, so so I don't mean to claim that like. Oh, Schultz would actually hurt Trump, but but it is true that like traditionally those libertarian-ish voters are Republican leaning, um, and that was true even in 2016 where um, there was a lot of focus on on cultural issues. So it would depend on kind of how Schultz ran the campaign. I mean, I don't know, and also who the nominees are. I mean, one yeah. of the things you, you wrote in uh, you wrote a piece that I was very motivational to me in the f- November of 2011 called uh, New York Times magazine cover because you created 538 New York uh, the yeah. New York Times took it, took it on and the piece was called is Obama toast and yeah, it was a it- front page piece in the magazine <laughs> and so I took that as a personal challenge to make sure that he wasn't toast but I don't begrudge you that because at the time the data suggested that he was vulnerable. We didn't have an opponent at the time, however. And yeah. one of the things that happens in elections is they're a dynamic process. 
when you have an opponent, it's not just a referendum on who you are. It's also a, a bi- you know, sometimes a binary, sometimes more choice. Yeah, these questions of like, would you vote to to reelect, you know, President X? I mean, I don't think either of us think those are very useful questions. Um, you know, it's also not particularly useful um, to ask about a candidate who, in the first phase, is not very well known necessarily. Right. In the second phase, which, by might, the way, right now, Joe Biden, you you wrote about this the other day. Right. You have a model to, uh, you know, an early model to try and understand the Democratic primary process. Joe Biden is um, sitting now in almost, in, if you aggregate them, probably about thirty percent. Yep. In the Democratic race, and look, he he has obviously he has qualities and strengths. Maybe people think that he can. He's the guy who can be Trump. There are there are a lot of factors here. But it's also true that he is better known as Bernie Sanders is better known. And they're not, it's no coincidence that they're number one and number two yeah. in this race right now. No, and sometimes sometimes it holds up. I mean, you know, um, something like half the time the early polling leader wins. But you don't usually have these big complex fields where you're going to have, you know, by my count, something like probably 11 or 12 credible Democratic candidates. I'm not going to get angry emails by saying who I think is a credible candidate and who isn't. Yes. Um, but 11 or 12 people that I think really have a, a, a chance without something really weird happening. Um, and, you know, that's kind of chaotic. It's like literally like um, a game of billiards where you kind of break and like you have 15 or 12 balls bouncing everywhere and like unintended things will will happen and careen off one another. You think about the, you know, about the GOP where what if Chris Christie who um, – it's kind of chummy with Trump and kind of, for whatever reason, had like a vendetta against Marco Rubio, Rubio yeah. who he thought of as Took kind of a out. pretty boy, I think. Right? He was a what hit, if man, that hit man from ha- Jersey in that yeah. debate up in New Hampshire. What if that hadn't happened? What if the narrative had been, okay, now um, Trump lost Iowa, and then maybe he, um, maybe Rubio gets that surge in New Hampshire instead of Kasich, and then Rubio wins South Carolina? I mean, I don't know. I tend to think that the Trump thing, as someone who was very skeptical about Trump's chances to win the nomination, so we will take blame for that, the first half of it, right? Um but like, but you know, but you can imagine a scenario where things turn out a little differently, and and um, you know, it was also fairly late into the campaign. It looked like you might have a contested convention for the GOP, and I think voters kind of said, you know what, uh, the alternative is a contested convention where we probably went up with is, Trump anyway, or Ted Cruz. Let's just go with Trump. This now. is this is this is my point, which is there are limits to what there are y- elements y- yeah. what you can do because. All you can do is work with the data in front of you, and there are so many elements that are uh, beyond the scope of what's on that page that in a very dynamic process involving human beings and the reaction that other human beings have to them yeah. and, and so on. But you did create this model, and uh, you, you uh, acknowledge Biden's, uh, uh, Biden's standing, um, but... I, uh, suggested that the um, the level of attention that people are paying among his supporters suggests that theirs is a more casual uh, commitment, and yeah. you you uh, and you suggest, and I I know you have a sort of this Venn diagram of five different categories uh, segmenting the Democratic electorate, but your conclusion was that uh, in addition to Biden, Beto O'Rourke, and Kamala Harris uh, looked to you at the starting point as the candidates who may have the best chance to navigate the process. So this is, you know, this is not a formal mathematical model. It's more of a, a, 
a mental model that we turn into something that we call the five the five corners of the democratic primary. So it's what we think of as the five major constituencies, um, which are um, party loyalists. So those are party establishment voters, more moderate, but they're often often women, often older, um, kind of core Hillary demographic. There is the left, which is sizable. There is millennials who are... Um, that sounds, and these, there can be overlap here. So there, you can be in all, can be in and, all five of these groups at right, once, technically, right? right? right. Um, there are black voters and there are Hispanic voters. Um, if you want to put Asian voters with Hispanics or mm-hmm. consider them a, a a sixth little mini group or whatever, then put them where, where you want. Increasing um, Democrat constituency. Increasingly important constituency. Mm-hmm. Um, but the basic idea is who is a candidate who can appeal to like at least three out of these five major constituencies? And so um, who checks those boxes? Well, you know, Kamala Harris is someone who um, I think will do well with African-Americans. Um, I think in California – has a very multi-ethnic coalition, so also popular with Hispanics and Asians. I think will do well with um, with party establishment voters who think of her as strong and able to take on Trump. And she's raised a lot of money and has the most robust campaign. No small campaign. thing, by the way. No small yeah, thing, especially right? in a process that's where California is playing earlier. Um, and maybe millennials think that, like, um, okay, well, you know, she's kind of cool looking and she's tough and like, and her social media metrics are. Are pretty good, um, and maybe the left. Actually, she's not left enough for the left, but she's also she's not a moderate, you know, right. either. And so they can probably. Yeah, live and with as her we and, learned with um, with Barack Obama, th- th- and, you know, partly he was against the war in Iraq, so that gave him some. But there's something about being a, an African American, or, or in her case, a Jamaican Indian American yeah. candidate that. Uh, Gives a certain presumptions to you, yeah. And there's gives you a little more latitude. And there's a certain authenticity there that I think, and I think a, a lot of millennials are also very, um, very concerned about, like, you know, do we really want like just like white men representing the Democratic Party um, when when forty percent or you know what percent of the Democrats are actually white men? It's like probably like like twenty five percent or something, right? And so shouldn't like the candidates like reflect the composition of the party itself? Um, and so, and so, yeah. And so, um, so she does well by that metric. I think, I think Beto, if he were to run, um, is also someone who would have different arguments to different groups. So millennials, I think would, um, obviously he's did very well among young voters in Texas, got a lot of people to vote for the first time. And excited them around the country. Yeah. Um, you know, he is not Hispanic. Um, however, he represents an extremely Hispanic district represented in Texas. And so you have to give some credit for that. Um, and I think like, again, with the party loyalists, I think people would see him as electable. We can debate what that means. And sometimes mm-hmm. um, it's probably easier for a good looking like white guy to be seen as electable. Um, but he is painting a more optimistic message. Um, you know, yeah. sometimes his instincts are good. Sometimes they're weird. I think he's actually had, if it's a rollout for a campaign, I think it's like not what been, a particularly good rollout. Yeah, I've like, had I have mixed feelings about that. I, I on the one hand, as a guy who's been around this a long time, I have the same view. On the other hand, it was exactly that sort of kind of uh, you know open and and sharing of his thoughts and his encounters and so on that made him popular. And it's a little bit like when you read all of these travel logs of his in a row, there is a kind of narrative arc that sort of leads to and so, and I think that's what we're uh, what we're going to see. Uh, we should point out, though, that um, there are different, there are overlying 
elements of this that you know are could be mitigating factors uh there's a process and it starts in Iowa and it starts in, yeah. in New Hampshire. And if you bomb out in those two places, whatever your potential down the line, they tend to filter out a lot of candidates. Yeah. And so thinking about like, you know, there are some candidates who um, have more obvious paths than others in the early states. So Kamala Harris, I think, would say, um, well, first of all, California potentially will begin early voting on, on the same day as the, the same day as Iowa. Right. Um, so she'll say, you know what, Iowa, New Hampshire, that's fine. They're small states, don't have very many delegates. They're too white. It's a relic of an old process. And so I'm going to do very well in California. I'm going to do very well in Nevada, where there are a lot of California transplants. I'm going to do very well as one of the couple of black candidates in South Carolina. Right. And so she has that is her theory path, of the case. They right? call it the uh, Pac-12 yeah. SEC theory. Yeah. And Amy, but, Amy, Amy Klobuchar could say, right. Like I'm, uh, I'm from. Minnesota, I could do well in Iowa. I'm, that will catapult. Yeah. I do think that whoever wins, I think the notion that uh, Kamala will dominate California, uh, unless she does well in those early states, whoever does do well, if someone else, if Beto O'Rourke were to win the Iowa caucuses, and maybe if he does, he's going to get votes in California. Biden could get votes. So, you know, I, I think these are formidable candidates. I have no idea what's going to happen. I'm just trying to underscore the fact that um, uh, predictive models at this point are subject to a lot of... No, and look, and one thing I think we're pretty good at at 538 is, you know, we have things we call models, but our formal official f- forecast model where we say this candidate has an X percent chance to win Y state, we're pretty thoughtful about when we put that out, right? Yeah. Because at this early stage, then as much as I am like a data-driven guy, at this early stage me and you having a conversation about this um, or me uh, and my team at 538 going out and looking at data and talking to campaigns right. and going in the field, right. right, and watching the reaction that other people have and reading other things, that's probably more robust, right? I think when you're a week away from Iowa, we would say yeah, the opposite. We're sure. like, look, we have our polling average, maybe it accounts for whatever other regional ingredient there is that's empirically tested and and ignore the discourse. We wouldn't say that now. Right, of course. Um, and so many things are going to look foolish. You know, the one thing that would occurs to me is like thinking about all these candidates who are very interesting. The one perception that seems to have completely faded is there was this idea that like, oh, the Democrats have like a bunch of of lightweights and they're not going to be able to find any nominee against Trump. And now, you know, you see a vacuum um, draws people in. And so you see people saying, hey, look, um, you know, number one, you had the Democratic Party dominated by by the Clintons and by Obama. You wouldn't call Obama a dynasty quite, right? But like, you know, so there's a power vacuum there because Obama can't run again and the Clintons are out of the picture, mm-hmm. um, you know. And number two, there is an opportunity to beat Trump and people probably think that um, Trump has a 40% approval rating and the shutdown went really badly and like, and hey, if I don't run now, there might not be an opportunity in 2024 because there might be a Democrat- right president already, and then I can't run until 2032. So everyone's right. running, including people that I think, frankly, like, might have been better, um, might have been better biding their time. Um, mm-hmm. But everyone's running, and Democrats, I think, feel enthusiastic about their about yeah. their field. But to kind of get back to the original point, like, but you just be careful about general election polling when you have a candidate who is running in the context of the primary, and then all of a sudden they kind of shift into general election mode. I mean, I'm sure you remember um, no, in, 2000, that- in 2008 when... You know, look, this 
you may disagree. I think 2008 was an election where as the economy got worse and worse over the course of the year, I think it was a general election. The Democrats had a lot of advantages. Oh, um, there's no doubt. I don't disagree yeah. with you at all. I would argue that 2012 was a strategically a much more complex challenge oh, for, for, for sure. That's not one of those things that was obvious who would right, win, right? right? We can tell a scenario where yeah, the economy was still very sluggish right. and like Obama had tried these things that some of which worked, some of which didn't. There was a big Tea Party backlash and Romney was a competent opponent. It's not that hard to tell a story of, of you know, 2012 where Romney wins. It right. is hard to tell a 2008 story where, where McCain wins, I, agree. I think. Um, but there was a period in, in April, May, the kind of nastiest, most dragged out fights in the primary where Obama's poll against McCain was was pretty awful um, because the information flow about Obama was very negative because Republicans were critiquing him because he was probably going to be the nominee at that point. And Hillary and half, was still firing And 49% right. Right. of the Democrats because right. 51-49 was very evenly split. We're right. also, you know, anti-Obama. And, and um, again, I would say Obama overall was treated pretty well by the press. Um but, you know, the press also wanted to see the contest play out. It's a lot more fun um, seeing every state matter in May and June than having to write your kind of general election pre-baked stuff. I also have this feeling that people, I think Democrats wanted to see a longer, maybe not even consciously, but you had a guy who was four years out of the Illinois State Senate. And I think everybody wanted to see him run the gauntlet, you know, just show what he had. And, and yeah. uh, I think it was a proving ground for him that, ultimately cemented his and there is there is something great about seeing um seeing all 50 states matter yeah um and the primaries really are that way especially the democratic primary where everything is so proportional that a delegate in idaho is as worthwhile as a delegate in ohio in fact Um, idaho turned out to be a critical one of the critical states for obama around the time of the super tuesday right so you can because we you know the obama campaign netted more uh, I think our margin in Iowa, in terms of delegates, was greater than Hillary Clinton's in New Jersey the same day. Yeah, uh, just because we so dominated that state. Listen, man, I could talk to you forever because we share these weird passions. Uh, but uh, I have to ask you this last question. And let me just say, anybody who enjoys and is interested and passionate about politics, or sports, or science, or the other subjects that you cover, five thirty eight is a great read. It's always a great read, no matter when you uh, look look at it. And so uh, I I uh, I highly recommend it. But I got to ask you this last question: Do you ever say to yourself, "It'd be kind of fun to be inside of one of these things and play with these huge data banks that they have and see what I could do with them strategically?" I I think my thinking is too different, and I've also thought about like, whatever I want to like work for a sports team. Um, and I think it's different because like, I like to have my work be public and I like when I have an idea to be able to, to write about it and have lots of people read the article or go on a podcast and talk about it or, or tweet about it. Um, you know, that's where I kind of derive like gratification from, um, you know, I do think about like, because I have these different interests that we've very generously been able to talk about today. You know, I do think at times like, um, you know, do I really want to be spending the rest of my life doing election models and election stuff when I, you know, I like poker, I, you know, I like sports, but like, I also would like to write another book and do something and teach about statistics or whatever else. So I definitely do think about like, um, about like 
these campaigns and kind of like, they're kind of like, I mean, as you know, they're like, it's kind of like very Olympian-like cycles where they build up and it's a big climax every four years. No, I listen, um, man, that was my life for three decades. Yeah. If you... Uh, and like, and, but you can, you can trick yourself, right? Because like right now is this period where, you know, I spend a lot of time um, in December and January, like, like traveling, right? Um, and like, it's just kind of one of the slower periods, although not as slow as it used to be mm-hmm. um, because Trump is still making news every day and because... Right. Boy, this Democratic primary started really early. Yes. Um, you know, a year from now, I'll be frozen in some uh, shitty hotel in New Hampshire trying to cover the primary, right? And watching the Super Bowl from some TV in a, uh, in Manchester and whatever else, right? And, like, and like hoping there's, like, a, um, yeah. a Walmart or something so we can buy, like, beer and snacks and stuff. And, like, so so it does get to be very much of a, of a grind. Um, and increasingly, you kind of get swept up in it and you don't really have these moments where you get to step back and and pause once the sweeping up starts then you're kind of you're in it and it goes very fast and you're reacting to things in real time whether yeah. you're covering it on the inside or the outside and so so you know after a period of time like that becomes like a little bit exhausting so i think about like things um that don't involve what i'm doing yeah. now but i i i think one of the things that would rank pretty low on that scope would actually working for a campaign well i'll tell you what whether you're um writing and analyzing about a presidential race or whether you're on the inside of one, it is exhilarating to be in New Hampshire in a shitty hotel room uh, in uh, in February. So I'm looking forward to it myself. No, there is there is an energy to it. Um, you know, I think even though, like, the primaries are much harder from, like, a modeling standpoint, I mean, they are just inherently kind of unpredictable. Yes. I mean, the primaries are a hell of a lot more fun <clears throat> than the general election, where you go one state at a time, where you know you really do less in Iowa because Iowa is more spread out, and because a caucus has much lower participation than a primary. Um, but in New Hampshire, it really does feel like Super Bowl week or something, and it's you know uh, January is actually very cold, can be quite beautiful in New yeah. Hampshire. There's always a lot of snow and so forth, and like you know you are like going to like town to town, and like it's very energizing. That's like you know probably my favorite part of the campaign is that turn between Iowa and yeah. and New Hampshire. Yeah. Um, and then the general election is like more of it. It is weird, right? Where you have like, the primary is like way longer than the general election too. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, all these people, you know, all these, you know, Elizabeth Warren and Kamala and Beto and, and Klobuchar and Biden, they're all going to be in our lives for like, for like a long time, for yeah. like next year and a half. So hopefully yeah. they'll be entertaining. Well, at and, least this drama has a lot of characters, so... It, you know, it, that'll be, uh, that'll be interesting. Yeah. Nate Silver, uh, great to have you back here at the University of Chicago. Thank you. And uh, really fun to chat with you. Cool. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit axefilespodcast.com and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. For more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu.